Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome uh, to the Atlantic Council, and welcome to the October edition of our Cyber Risk Wednesday. I'm slightly distracted by the, the cool prop that we have here on the side that I think we're going to be talking about some more today. My name is Daniel Chu. I'm the uh, director of the Strategy Initiative here at the Atlantic Council. I'm also deputy director of the Brent Scowcroft Center on International uh, Security. Uh, and we run Cyber Risk Wednesday uh, here, hosted uh, by us uh, and in collaboration with our partners uh, at uh, Christian Science Monitor uh, Passcode. Uh, this afternoon's conversation is on hacking the vote. I feel like there should be some ominous music there when I, when I say that. And it's part of our long-running monthly Cyber Risk Wednesday series uh, and is also very timely. I, a bunch of us were saying that uh, I woke up at least this morning to a radio uh, story on exactly this topic. So it's a particularly timely discussion and we have a particularly distinguished group uh, panelists that will examine the trade-offs and threats uh, that are facing our election system, electoral system, ranging from uh, historical paper systems uh, to current U.S. voting computers uh, to internet-based voting uh, in many countries uh, and many other countries. So really a great panel to help us uh, put this whole uh, story of hacking the vote uh, into some context and with some uh, real substance behind it. But before I dive into, we dive into all of this, I'd like to welcome those uh, who are watching uh, online. I encourage you to join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag ACCyber, at ACScowcroft, and at CSMPasscode. Uh, this election year, you all know we've already seen some heated discussion about how hacking, data breaches, and other cyber crimes could impact voter registration, voting computers, because they're not just voting machines anymore, they really are computers, uh, and even the outcome of the election itself. But the act of tampering, uh, tampering with and undermining trust in the electoral process uh, honestly goes back much further than, of course, just this election. It goes back perhaps as long as there have been elections. Uh, though the mechanisms have changed over time, uh, the idea of influencing and possibly uh, changing the outcomes of elections is nothing new to either foreign or domestic uh, players. Make no mistake as well, this is an international problem just as much as it is uh, an American problem. There are several examples already in Europe and Latin America where cyber insecurity uh, or even the fear of cyber insecurity of insecurity uh, have been used to influence public opinion uh, before, during, and after uh, elections. Uh, in fact, uh, in your seats, uh, you will find a report from two years ago discussing many of these issues and the recommendations uh, in it, uh, in, uh, that are contained in it, are still very relevant today. Uh, those of you online will probably not find that report in your seats, but we will post a link to it uh, so that you can find that uh, as well. Here in the U.S., voting authorities started rapidly implementing e-voting solutions to make voting more accessible and efficient in the wake of, for example, the Hanging Chad controversy in the presidential election in 2000 and the Help America Vote Act in 2002. A number of electronic solutions were either ill-conceived uh, or have not aged well in the 14 years since. And it certainly won't come as a surprise to the people in this room and online uh, that computers, even voting computers, uh, are hackable. Uh, additional alarms ring when it comes to voter registration information and the system f systems for tabulating votes, which may be dangerously vulnerable even to relatively low-skilled uh, hackers. Uh, however, it's not just the voting technology that's at risk. We've started to see recently, in particular, hacks of political parties uh, and other uh, entities that can highlight the vulnerability of the entire uh, electoral and maybe even our political process. The daily leaks that we've been seeing lately uh, from the Democratic National Committee and other political organizations are having an impact on the political campaigns. 
While leaks have been common in politics, uh, these kinds of hacks really do represent a new level of scale, often dubbed as the electronic Watergate, where traditional responses may no longer work. And the possibility that more sensitive information is waiting to be released at an opportune moment uh, could create opportunities for foreign powers seeking to interfere with the presidential elections or even criminal entities. In addition, with one presidential candidate, I'll let you guess which one, uh, warning his supporters that the election is going to be rigged, quote unquote, hackers may not even need to actually compromise voting computers or systems to undermine the people's trust in the election results. Merely a credible claim of doing so could compel voters to cry foul and undermine the legit legitimacy of the vote both at home in the United States and abroad as others look at the outcome. So, today we are here to find out what is truly new about the cyber threats we are seeing and how, a uh, how great a threat they could actually be, what actions will best preserve trust in our elections, uh, and what can be done uh, in general. Before I ask the panelists uh, to uh, join us here on the stage, let me briefly uh, introduce them. Uh, I'll start with Jeremy Epstein, who I'm pretty sure brought this uh, device with him, uh, senior computer scientist at SRI uh, International. He's currently on loan to DARPA's Information Innovation Office, and previously he was sent by SRI to the National Science Foundation's Secure and Trustworthy Cyberspace Program. Also joining us is Joseph Hall. Uh, he's Chief Technologist and Director of the Internet Architecture Project at the Center for Democracy and Technology. Uh, he also serves on the boards of the California Voter Foundation, the Verified Voter Foundation, and on the FCC's Computer Security Reliability and Interoperability uh, Council. Uh, pleased to welcome Massimo uh, Tomiselli, uh, Tomisoli, I'm, excuse me, I'm sorry. Uh, he's the permanent observer for the International Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance uh, at the United Nations. Uh, his long resume of public service includes work at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the Development Assistance Committee, as well as in the Italian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And finally, Kim Zetter uh, will be joining us to moderate uh, this discussion. Uh, Kim has been covering cybersecurity since 1999, including more, of a more than a decade uh, at Wired Magazine. She's a journalist and author uh, who is well known for covering this range of issues. Uh, and we're looking forward to her leading this discussion with us uh, today. As always, again, thank you to our media partner, Passcode, the Christian Science Monitor's new guide to security and privacy. Uh, thank you all for joining us here and online. Looking very much forward to this discussion. And now let me invite the panelists to come join us uh, to get us started. Thank you for coming. So um, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, he actually covered some of the intro that I was going to uh, um, go over. But I do want to give you some context for why, why we even have a discussion today about hacking the vote, hacking the voting machines. Obviously, when we're talking about hacking the vote this year, unlike any other year we've had before, we're talking about two kinds of hacking. Um, as he discussed uh, in his intro, not only technical hacking of voting machines, but hacking the minds of voters uh, for influencing. Uh, the outcome of an election. So, so what do we mean when we're talking about hacking voting machines and how did we get here? Uh, this all started with the 2002, the Help America Vote Act. Uh, it was passed in the wake of the 2000 debacle, the Bush v. Gore results out of Florida, but that wasn't the reason that it was passed. It was intended to provide uh, disabled voters, particularly voters that had uh, hearing or sight impediments, 
to give them the ability to vote without assistance in the polling place and so that they could actually have a private vote. Uh, federal government allocated about $4 billion to states so that they could purchase accessible voting machines. But instead of just buying one or two touchscreen voting machines uh, that they considered the accessible machines, instead of simply buying just one or two of those machines per polling precinct, they decided to go on a shopping spree and replace all of their voting systems uh, with touchscreen voting machines in many precincts. And these were, uh, they're also called direct recording electronic DRE machines. Initially, they didn't have a paper trail until uh, academics and and voting activists made an issue of that, that there was no ability to actually check the vote and verify that it recorded the vote that the voters intended to, to choose. So we now have some DREs, touchscreen machines, that produce a paper trail. We also have states that have opted for optical scan machines. These are machines where you're choosing on a paper ballot your choices, and then it gets scanned into an electronic uh, machine. Um, that is problematic in the same way that DREs with a paper trail are problematic if you don't have an audit after the election. If you simply have a paper trail but you don't actually do anything with it to verify the election afterwards, simply having that paper trail doesn't mean anything. So we're going to talk about all of those issues today and including influence uh, hacking. Um, and I wanted to just sort of start because, uh, you, know, you know, the Help America Vote Act was passed in 2002. Uh, states bought machines. We've had them for over a decade now. Um, problems throughout that decade with machines in elections. And um, uh, we've had some resolutions in terms of, uh, you know, some states and counties have uh, turned off Wi-Fi of machines. Smart move. Um, but there are other problems around the security of the systems and the way that they're handled, the processes of elections and things like that. So I want to focus, well maybe we should actually talk about the win vote first, just why it's here and then we'll talk about sort of the state. Sure. Um, so Jeremy brought this uh, beautiful machine which is known as the worst voting machine in America. Recently de decommissioned last year in Virginia, they had 3,000 of them. Um, maybe you'll explain why we have it and sure. why it's so problematic. Sure. Well, a lot of it is about electronics and software, but a lot of it is also about the physical access. So I don't know if, uh, how many of you can see what I'm holding, and, and you can have one of these as a souvenir if you'd like. Um, this is, this is a, a key that is uh, cheaper than the keys that uh, uh, open hotel minibars. Um, and this is what secures the uh, USB key that stores all the votes on the AVS win vote. So this is just one of the problems. Uh, and, and it's symptomatic that it's very trivial uh, protection that for a very important problem. So the win votes uh, have been in, were in use in Virginia, in uh, Mississippi, and in Pennsylvania. They're the only three states that ever used them, and Virginia was by far the largest market for them. Um, to make a long story short, when they were decommissioned last year, it was after the state discovered that they had Wi-Fi enabled that could not be turned off. We had known that they had Wi-Fi. We didn't realize that it couldn't be completely turned off. It turned out that it used the WEP encryption method, which for those geeks in the room, you'll know that that was known to be a compromised system 10 years ago. It takes a couple of seconds to compromise it. Turned out that even though it was compromised, it didn't matter because the password on it was ABCDE and couldn't be changed. And then it turned out that uh, it was just a Windows machine and you could connect to it with any other Windows machine and download the files or modify the files. Uh, you needed the administrator password, but that was admin, uh, so it wasn't really too hard to break <laughs> into these. Um, so the good news is that the state 
recognized the problems. When After they, a decade. They had been using them for a decade, but when they finally looked at them, they immediately said, oh, <laughs> four-letter word, um, and, and got rid of them all. And uh, Virginia, like most states in the country now, is moving to the optical scans, as you said, Kim. Um, uh, about 80% of all voters this year will use optical scans. There are three states that are DRE without paper trail only. I'm sorry, five states. Yeah. Um, South Carolina. New Jersey, Delaware, Georgia, Louisiana, and South Carolina. Well, Thank speak you. Speak up a little louder. I, I missed that. Five states currently have no paper trail. New Jersey, Delaware, Georgia, Louisiana, and South Carolina. And then there's about another 10 states where, depending where you live, you might or might not have any sort of a paper trail. As Kim said, though, it's great to have a paper trail, but if nobody looks at it, if there's no audits, then um, it doesn't do any good. Very, relatively few states do audits, and then there are some unique cases, like Virginia, again, um, where it's actually illegal to do an audit, and we can get into that if you care. <laughs> uh, okay, so, so, actually, so this machine, um, you wanted to give away if someone yeah. is... Yeah, I, uh, when, when they were decommissioned, I got about 50 of them donated to me by the state. I've been distributing them to universities and museums literally around the world and uh, uh, for the purpose of research. And if you're interested in having one, uh, please let me know. This one is available for a, to a good home. Okay, so um, okay, so we we know that five, at least five states now um, are voting on DRE machines without a paper trail. Um, let's, let's look at the, the issue of whether or not voting machines are still hackable today. I mean, this machine certainly was. Now it's being de decommissioned. Given that there's been so much focus and publicity about the systems and their hackability, um, have we seen any kind of progress in the sense of how they're being used today? Has Wi-Fi been disabled in all states? Has it been, uh, have the machines been secured in a, in a better way? Do we know? Yes, so I definitely think that we're in a better state than we, than we were last decade. Specifically, something like uh, three out of four voters will cast a ballot uh, using a paper ballot or on something that creates a, a paper trail. So in addition to the geographic distribution we talked about, you know, you can be confident that three out of four people have some sort of paper record. Um, it's a little different on the audit side. Audits, I mean, I'm happy to go into it, but it's, it's kind of a mess. And some of the audit styles that people are doing, right, and the whole reason to do an audit is to check the computer tally of the, the voting computer against a, a manual tally, you know, looking at the, the actual paper records. Um, it's a way of sort of arriving at ground truth. Um, I think I, I'd like to claim a little bit of, of, um, uh, uh, of the responsibility for the fact that that voting machines have, and the procedures around them have gotten a, a considerably better since the last decade. Um, the Election Assistance Commission deserves a lot of credit. That's the federal agency that is tasked with helping uh, local election jurisdictions run um, secure, robust, usable elections. And over time, their testing procedures have gotten better and, and more sound. The trick is, is any computer security person will tell you that testing only gets you a certain level of confidence, and then there's always going to be ways to get around that. And so, for example, some of the things I'm not so confident about are things like tamper-evident tape. You know, typically we put these numbered seals over seams of the voting machines, and that if you try to, you know, hack your way in and you know get in there and mess with the brains inside, um, you have to pull that piece of tape up, and it will, you know, it will. It looks like it's been messed with. You know, to say void, 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 and stuff like that. Typically a heat gun, which is something anyone who's been in a shop glass is all you need to lift that piece of tape without distri disturbing the... And so th there's, thing, there's plenty of examples like bad keys, 
um, you know, that Jeremy was holding up, other things like that that are, that are not as good. Uh, I do think the fact that we've been a little um, uh, 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 rigorous about saying, please don't ever do networking on these machines, and Virginia was one of the few places that, and I forget, Jeremy, what, I don't even want to state it. There was something you could do from like across the, the street to one of these machines. Do you want to talk about that a little? Uh, you could use the, what's called a Pringles can attack. You, a Pringles can is an effective antenna for Wi-Fi, and so you can log into one of these machines uh, from across the street and manipulate the votes. So. Yeah. so that's pretty unique. Typically, we don't have. It was the only machine in use in the United States that had Wi-Fi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and but you didn't, you didn't even need that. I, as, as I recall, uh, any, any voter in the precinct who had a smartphone could connect to the Wi-Fi that the right. voting yeah. machines were using. Right. So not from and, across and the access. street without yes. a Pringles can. Exactly. Yeah. You, you didn't need a Pringles can. <laughs> <laughs> but, but still, I think you know, there, there, there's this, these concepts in voting, like one that we call software independence, which is the notion that any undetectable error in the software of the machine should not result in an undetectable error in the, in the, in that, in the outcome, the final count. And that's kind of a, a, a academic-y way of thinking about it, but that's why we have things like paper trails and you know, there's a whole set of cryptographic voting methods that aren't uh, <laughs> widely used and, and some of us uh, worry about them in other ways, but those can also provide some sort of hard check against the, the, the software being bad. So we have, we have two ways of hacking a system. is a remote hack, uh, if a system is somehow yeah. connected to the internet um, or connected to a system that is connected to the internet. It doesn't have to be directly connected. And then we have what you were describing as proximity hack. Yeah. If, you can, if you can access the, the ports on the machine while you're in the poll booth, or if you can access the machines while they're in storage before they're distributed. Many of these machines sit in schools and uh, theaters overnight, um, or they sit in an unsecured warehouse for years uh, in between Absolutely. elections. Yeah, and so a really good example of that, you know, and when you hear people say these voting machines aren't connected to the internet, that should give you a little bit of comfort, but not a whole lot, because, you know, as Dan Wallach, a computer science professor from Rice University, said recently, you know, there was malicious hacking before we had the internet, before we had networks even, right? There were things called floppy disks, which very few people in this room may have seen or know what those are, but there were viruses that were transmitted by floppy disks, essentially media that you could put in and out of a machine. And when I was at Princeton, I didn't directly work on this, but there's such smart people um, that designed a, a virus for specifically th this machine called the Diebold AccuVote TS, which is used throughout the entire state of Georgia right now. This was a machine where, again, the default password was one, two, three, four. It's not even the Spaceballs combination, which is one, <laughs> two, three, four, five, <laughs> even though that's not much better. Um, and they designed a virus that, that would do this. Essentially, in one election, say the primary election, you would get access to the back of the machine, stick a, a USB stick or something in there that would install malware on that one machine. Between the two elections, that piece of malware would have the opportunity to go from that machine to the, the election management system, the one computer that tells all the other machines, you know, here's what the ballots are going to look like for this next election. The um, programs the, the voting programs machine the, the voting election. machine and stuff like that. And it would, through that, spread to all the other voting machines for the next election, the general election. And so that's a way of installing a piece of malware on a device that then, you know, over a, a longer period of time spreads itself. And so that's the kind of thing where if you think about what kind of attackers would do that kind of a thing. It's not going to be someone two months ago who woke up and said, ooh, man, maybe we want to hack the, the vote, so to speak, right? And what you are going to have are much more sophisticated, much more long-term kinds of, of entities like nation states that may 
uh, are more likely to employ techniques like that, you know, bide their time, and that don't always rely on it being a perfect way of doing these things. And, and Georgia is not a swing state by any stretch of the imagination, but there are, um, you know, other platforms that are that don't have the kind of security we'd want that may be susceptible to these kinds of slower. Um, proximity hacks, as you put them. Well, it's interesting uh, that Georgia did that sort of test because Georgia actually had a problem with certified software in, I think it was 2008. So they had all these D-Bolt touchscreen machines in a warehouse, and they were using uh, officials at Georgia Tech University who were helping them with the machines. And about two weeks before the election, these, um, these helpers went in and upgraded the software on these D-Bolt systems. And no one had any oversight over the software. They simply said that these machines needed to be upgraded, and they installed on thousands of machines. So that's a, sort of a problem of um, process as well. I mean, you can have uh, an external actor who gets access to these machines and does something, but you can also have a problem with simply upgrading machines at the last minute um, in a way that that software is not examined or certified. Um, and then you don't know what it's what it's doing. And you and, and again, if you're if you're doing something intentionally, you can design it in such a way that it disappears once it's it's caused its problems, so that someone examining the code afterwards is not going to be able to actually see the malicious code's presence there. Um, there was an interesting case in Iowa a number of years ago uh, that's very much like that, where there was an upgrade to the Windows uh, operating system on I don't remember which brand of machine it was, and it turned out that it had a certain feature which meant that each voter, when they stepped up to the voting machine, it would pre-highlight on, um, on the ballot whoever the previous voter had voted for. Uh, and this was a feature of how Windows worked. It wasn't anything intentional. Um, but nobody had recertified it because they didn't think that changing the version of Windows would cause a change in the voting behavior. But in this case, there was a, an interesting interaction. And Doug yeah. Jones at the University of Iowa is the one who, who uh, talks about that in his book. Interesting. Okay. All right. So we've looked at uh, remote hacking. We've looked at, we're looking at proximity hacking. I also want to just sort of address internet voting uh, for a second here because while it's not a huge problem right now, um, election officials are very keen for internet voting. Um, and they, they'll throw out a lot of reasons for why this is crucial for going forward and why um, the young generation of voters with smartphones, this is what they want. And, and they do. They, they seem to think that there's nothing wrong with that they do everything else online. Why shouldn't they be able to vote online for more convenience? So let's talk about that in terms of how, how widespread is internet voting right now and um, some of the issues around it. There's more than 30 states that allow internet voting for uh, usually for military and overseas voters. Um, in the case of Alaska, for any voter can vote online. Um, in, there are no standards uh, for internet voting systems. The National Institute of Standards and Technology, which is charged by the Help America Vote Act with writing these standards, has declined to provide standards saying, we don't know how to do it securely, therefore we're not going to provide a standard that says how to do it securely because we don't think it can be done at this point. However, as I say, more than 30 states are doing it, and so they're basically doing it on their own. It's unclear. Uh, what, if any, security measures they're bringing to bear in terms of uh, external reviews or anything like that. There's, there's been nothing public um, that I've seen from, from anywhere other than here in the District of Columbia with uh, the uh, infamous case uh, of the uh, uh, University of Michigan hack against a uh, test system that they, they provided. Uh, that was the one where they made uh, all the robots win 
the election. It, it, was a, it was a sample election, it was not a real election, of course. Um, and they played the Michigan fight song <laughs> for, for every voter. <laughs> um, so with, re with regard to, so approximately how many votes do you know if, uh, would be accounted for from internet voting in this election then? It, it's pretty hard to find that information out because most states don't break out the, uh, the, the source for the votes um, uh, in their results. They'll tell you this many votes from this county or even this precinct, but they don't tell you uh, this many came over the internet and this many were mail-in absentee ballots and this many were in-person absentee and so on. So it's pretty hard to tell. Um, in Virginia, I was on a commission that looked at this and I think there were somewhere, I don't remember the exact number, but somewhere in the range of 10,000 voters in the state who were eligible um, uh, if internet voting had passed, which it did not, um, there would be about 10,000 people who might have taken advantage of it uh, out of a voting population of about, uh, I think, four and a half million. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about audits for a second, and then I want to bring you, Massimo, in about the uh, um, election monitoring and influencing. But just, just um, let's discuss auditing, because um, you mentioned uh, how many states actually have auditing rules uh, right at this so point? I had to bring my and why does, here for this why does Virginia is particularly opposed <laughs> make it illegal? For <laughs> and and let's, uh, let's talk about exactly what an audit involves in terms of one yeah, percent yeah. and all that. Absolutely. So um, uh, if you're going to capture a paper record, you want to do something with that paper record. You want to actually count uh, all of them, maybe, <laughs> um, which is sort of the standard definition of an audit is basically a recount, right? Those are extremely expensive, extremely time-consuming. And so there's an effort, there have been efforts um, since 1964 to try and get some aspects of counting the paper to check the computer results without having to do a full recount. And so um, California passed the first uh, statewide paper audit law in, I think, 1964, I'm pretty sure. Um, and it was... Uh, it's morphed over the years to be a 1% uh, manual tabulation of uh, voting machines chosen randomly from certain polling places, certain precincts. And so they actually use uh, uh, various ways of generating random numbers to pick a set of uh, polling places in every county that they then recount all the ballots in those polling places and compare them to the, the, the election result. And in fact, that's sort of the simplest way to think about an audit is some number that is put in a statute, 1%, 2%, 3%. Some places condition it on if the, if the election was particularly close, like Pennsylvania, for example, has a mandatory recount law that if it gets below a half of 1% in the margin, um, you go. Um, there's a newer flavor of, uh, of audits, which is if the Australian ballot, which is the secret ballot, transformed elections in the last, in the last um, uh, uh, century, this thing that I'm about to talk, to, talk about is going to transform elections around the world for the in the next century, and they're called risk-limiting audits. This is a statistical way of doing, of counting the paper that ensures that you have a large probability of catching uh, the fact that you, you, you misstated the outcome. So the, the, to say it in plainer, plainer terms, if the outcome you reported to the press, to everyone, the, the thing that everyone waits for on election night, if that is incorrect, these kinds of mechanisms have a high probability of correcting that bad outcome. And so they are very different than 1%. The idea is that you look at the margin of the race and a few other factors, um, and then you tune the sample you choose to be uh, to give you the confidence you would need. So, for example, if the race is extremely close, say the Bush v. Gore race in, in Florida in 2000, you may actually have to do a full recount. But for most cases where there's you know, a 5% margin, 2 or 3% margin, 
the, the way you do these calculations ensure that you count as few ballots as you need to to confirm the actual result. And if you can't confirm the result, you end up either enlarging your sample or doing a full recount, which by definition co corrects your misstated outcome. And so this is the, what you need to do to make sure that the, I mean, having the paper is one thing, but counting it in, in correctly is, is another thing. And that's something we're still lagging behind. And I could just, for example, um, there's, Almost half states, 24 states, have no mandatory manual audit of their paper um, at all. Um, nine states, wait, no, no. Uh, 13 states have some post-election auditing, but it tends to be 1%, 5%, these things that aren't tuned to the, the margin of the race, and so it's, they're not very well designed. There's a whole bunch, New Mexico, California, and Colorado have provisions in the law to allow people to do these actual risk-limiting audits. So bring the statisticians in, do a sample, compare them, and then decide if you need to actually count them all. David Becker said in this morning's Politico, if Jill Stein starts winning South Carolina by a wide margin, uh, that might be a sign that something's off. But the ironic thing, what he didn't say in the article is, if Jill Stein wins South Carolina by 5%, probably there's nothing legally that can be done about it uh, because it won't be within the margin of a recount. So an audit is the only way we would discover it. Not that I have anything against Jill Stein, but it would be kind of a surprising result. Yeah. Um, and to address the question of, of Virginia, because as far as I know, I've talked to a bunch of people, Virginia seems to be the only state where it's illegal. And I say illegal because it's illegal with an asterisk. The asterisk is if every race on the ballot was decided by a margin of at least 10%, and after all the results have been certified by the state, i.e., it doesn't make a difference anymore, then you can do an audit. <laughs> um, but you can't do an audit any other time. Um, so it's not an audit that has an opportunity to actually correct right. the bad outcome. Right. It'll tell you, oh, you screwed that one up, don't do it again. Right. Right. And they, they tried this out. They, they did some sample audits after this. This was a new law. It used to be they were totally illegal. This was an improvement. Um, uh, very small improvement. And the outcome of the audit was that the results were uh, pretty similar. Of course, an audit result will never be exactly the same as the original. That, that's, you just have to know that there's going to be differences because some you're going to have human differences in how they um, look at the colored circles or even machine differences. But the, the conclusion was it, was it was very close. It was close enough that we were confident in the results. And therefore, we never needed to do another audit again. That was the conclusion of their study, which was sort of a, um, so it's sort of like if you file your taxes with the IRS and they audit you and they say, oh, everything's okay, you will never be audited or considered ever again because you obviously know how to do everything perfect. The IRS doesn't work that way, but yet that's, that was the outcome of, of that audit examination. There was uh, an election in California in a small county, uh, again, I think this was 2008, where um, the audit would not have count, uh, caught the problem. Small county, they, they discovered that the, it was, this was an optical scan machine, so they had a paper trail, um, and they discovered that the machine had dropped about 167 ballots. And um, the votes were there after they did the initial uh, canvassing of the, the ballots um, after the election, and they disappeared sometime after that. Um, it would not have been caught in that 1% because the 1% takes a random uh, 
number of precincts in order to do um, the audit, and this uh, would not have been included in that 1%. Um, they decided to try this new um, um, radical transparency, um, where they, they, while they had their Diebold optical scan machine scanning the, the ballots, they bought a Fujitsu printer and scanned all of the same ballots uh, simultaneously in their scanner. And then when they compared the results, they discovered that the Diebold system had dropped 167 ballots and the Fujitsu system had caught all of them. So what do you trust? The risk, uh, risk assessment or risk management um, uh, well, audits? Really quickly, there are what we call uh, in auditing materiality audits and process auditing. Materiali materiality audits check the numbers, check that you arrived at the right result. Process auditing checks that everything that goes into making the result was done correctly, and that's where, you know, it, it's it's very hard to do that right. It's not the thing that people, you know, get up in the morning to. You don't get up to be a process auditor when you <laughs> want to go to work and stuff. Um, it's not the, the the best job in the world. But those are the kinds of things where, you know, we need just as much rigor to that as we do. Um, you know, and all the processes that arrive to the actual results themselves. Right. Okay, so let's, let's switch it for a moment. I want to come back to security voting machines a, a bit later, but let's talk about influence hacking. Um, we have this sort of unprecedented election in the U.S. We've never had this situation before, or have we? I'm wondering, um, have we... It's quite common overseas in elections where you've got this problem. And in, in fact, the CIA has been uh, quite successful in, in influencing elections in the past. Um, so give us a, an idea of sort of uh, where we are contextually for this kind of uh, situation in the U.S. Is it true that we haven't had before? Well, if we place it in the wider context of uh, electoral processes worldwide, uh, there is a growing experience by uh, election observers in dealing with electronic voting. Uh, you mentioned a few examples in, in the U.S. of states that adopted it. But in fact, uh, outside of the U.S., there is, a, I would say, a consolidated experience in India, in uh, countries like the Philippines, um, and uh, Brazil, for example. Uh, oh, but you're referring to specifically the machines again, rather than I'm referring to, to the machines right? again, mm -hmm. but uh, they are also experiencing uh, internet voting in, uh, in some uh, cases. Although that is not uh, the, uh, the rule for uh, you know, the latest uh, um, political elections in those countries. Now, um, talking about audit, uh, I think you can uh, get uh, what does that mean in terms of audit auditing a system, so to speak. Uh, the if the focus is on election day, there will be a lot of interest in looking at the numbers and uh, focusing on these uh, statistical techniques, if you have the means that are basically related to the availability of a paper trail, that can be used. But um, auditing a system, auditing the process before uh, election day, three, four months before election day, is also a practice that election observation missions are trying to introduce in, uh, in their uh, best uh, uh, you know, implementation of uh, the guidelines adopted internationally. Mm -hmm. There are examples from uh, the OSCE in uh, Europe uh, and also the Carter Center. Uh, both developed the handbooks uh, on observing uh, electoral, uh, electronic voting. And these are uh, actually drawn from uh, general principles that belong to election observation per se, not necessarily focused on electoral electronic voting. 
but they have specificities, specificities that are related to the, uh, the medium, to the technique. So uh, just to give you a, an example, you mentioned uh, the uh, risks related to internet voting. But if you assess uh, a system, you would also look at how uh, data that are produced uh, through electro electronic voting machines, for example, are processed uh, by computers that may be hooked uh, to uh, the internet. Mm -hmm. So that is a form of indirect access to internet that, uh, that is not normally considered as part of the label category uh, in internet voting, and still it presents risks of uh, manipulation. Let me just uh, quote uh, the uh, Russian security firm uh, CEO, uh, CEO of uh, Kaspersky Labs. He, he identified, I think it was last Friday, on an Italian uh, uh, TV, he was interviewed and he was asked, what, uh, what is the, uh, the biggest threat to democracy in your view? And he said, uh, uh, it is uh, internet voting, in his view, uh, unless the uh, environment and the procedures and the systems are safe enough, there will be a growing tendency towards uh, using uh, these uh, means of voting, and uh, there would be uh, risks, high risks of, uh, of breaching and manipulation uh, before, during, and after elections. In fact, that applies also uh, in different ways to the history of, of voting, also to paper ballots. Uh, so what we had to learn is really how uh, observing elections can introduce elements of independent assessment that can help election management bodies to make the environment for voting safer and to increase also the confidence by voters in the system, which is, I think, one of the challenges of the U.S. system now. Just one, not, not the only one. Uh, Pippa Norris in a recent... Uh, paper uh, from Harvard uh, University in a recent paper identified five challenges to the integrity of elections in the US. And these one, the risk of uh, hacking uh, breaches, is only one out of five. You have also uh, the regulation of campaign financing, you have issues about the polarization, and therefore trust among political parties uh, in the electoral procedures. You have issues of, uh, of course, uh, a lack of professional standards in electoral management, especially in a highly fragmented environment where elections are managed. And I would say the most important one is lack of public confidence in the electoral process. All of these are interrelated. Although we focus now on just one of them, I think uh, the uh, discourse should address all of them at mm -hmm. the same time. So let's, let's talk a bit about uh, some of those latter ones that you're talking about in influencing and things. Um, people have, there have been a, a, some, some reports about concerns that, for instance, the Associated Press might get hacked. Uh, the Associated Press, of course, is what we're all relying on for our results, and, and other media outlets are relying on those as well. Um, so what is the potential there, and, and what are the possibilities for when you're monitoring election um, for preventing that kind of influence hacking. The, the, the results are not all in, especially in a country as large as the US where you've got multiple time zones that you're dealing with and you've got partial results being reported um, on one coast while another coast is still voting. Um, how, do you, how do you address that, that issue of uh, false reports uh, coming out, other than sort of securing you know, AP's computers mm -hmm. and trying to monitor that? How do you? 
let me answer in, uh, in uh, a simple way. Uh, what is an election uh, observer mission? It is a group of people who visit the country, and you may have in that uh, group expertise that focuses on the technology. But you have also other experts. You have a media expert, for example. You have a legal uh, expert who looks at how the system is defined, designed, in order to uh, internalize the processes uh, linked to uh, electoral, uh, electronic voting. And you have also long-term observers coordinator that uh, I think gathers and analyzes the information of long-term observers, those, those who are on the, on the, in the field, not only during or around election day, and can actually monitor also how the media are reacting or influencing uh, public uh, views about the elections. I think this is a combination of expertise in a process that is not linked just to a week or a month, but it covers the entire uh, electoral cycle and can provide actually avenues for addressing, uh, together with the election management bodies, the bodies that are responsible for the management of the elections, I think uh, issues like uh, public confidence as a result of, um, I would say, um, manipulating, uh, you know, behaviors by, by media. Mm -hmm. yeah, Another response to that is that you need to be really patient <laughs> on election day. I mean, this is one thing that working in elections you learn really quickly. One thing you learn is that election officials get no days off for six to eight weeks before election day, so please thank them for doing what they do because it's hard work. But on the other side, um, you're not going to have a very high confidence number on election night. And the AP works very hard, 5,000 reporters, whatever. Um, but you know, the, a great story from 2014 in Ukraine can illustrate how you really need to be careful what, what you rely on on election night. So in 2014 in, in the Ukraine, in, some, in March of that year, um, a Russian-affiliated hacker group had started poking around the Ukraine's Central Election Commission site. Um, and May 21st, four days before the end of the election day, um, the entire Central Election Commission's server infrastructure was just totally hosed. They, someone had gotten there and just basically run rampant with destruction in terms of pulling things apart and, um, and, and speaking of software. Twelve minutes before the close of polls, the main website that reports the results reported the um, Ukrainian uh, right leader, Dmitry uh, Yavosh, had won. Instantly, the Russian state television station started reporting that that was the outcome of the election. Um, and you know, this was exactly a hack designed to influence the, the hearts and minds of Ukrainians and Russians and stuff like that. And in the Ukraine, at least, they have paper ballots that they delivered a, a place in Kiev, and they were able to count them. It took them a, a, a while, one, to get their servers back up, but two, to actually report what was a high-confidence result from the paper ballots. And so you should see anything on election night as being potentially the right answer, <laughs> but, but that understand that it takes, in a lot of states, a couple of weeks, even three weeks, to get at what is the official correct answer, which is called the canvas with two S's. And so, um, don't be so concerned. I mean, it's not going to be the end of the world if, 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 if we don't get, or if we get weird results on election night. Um, but but I, I have a feeling the likelihood of that is, is small. But. Jeremy, did you want to add anything? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, I, I, you know, in addition to sort of hacking uh, potentially a media outlet, there are also some issues about the 
uh, election results coming from um, county websites. Um, and we had some issues about in Ohio at one point where the website that was actually delivering the results was being uh, maintained by a third-party company um, who had ties to Republican Party. And so there, there was this issue raised of even if you had the voting machines covered and the security of the voting machines you felt confident in, those results that were then being fed through this, um, the system that was telling everyone, and especially in a, in a state like Ohio, which was a, is a, always a crucial state in a presidential election. Um, so I guess uh, you know, I, you're, you're talking about being calm and waiting for the final results, but really on election night we call, we call the president, we call the winner. Um, and I understand what you're saying about you know, backtracking later on, but... That is what happened in Bush v. Gore. Yeah, exactly. Is, uh, CNN called it and had to backtrack. Right. And it is the academic consensus that that election was, ended up being called incorrectly. But that can influence subsequent voters. Of course. Yeah, this is the problem with you know, having these election day is essentially a natural experiment where we run it on one day is it's very susceptible to um, uh, attacks like denial of service attacks and other kinds of things. You know, for example, um, there's these things called e-poll books, which... Uh, I was just going to ask you uh, about this. So yeah. when you go and vote, you typically sign in and they, they check your name off on a list. Um, for the longest time, those have been paper. Increasingly, those are being moved to laptops or tablet computers. Now, we have had cases in the past where either the computers wouldn't start or they crashed or something, or they didn't have a network connection. They didn't have a way of making sure that it, you didn't vote at one place on the other side of the city and run over to this place and vote at the same time. Um, and Which what, is almost unknown. Yeah, absolutely. There's very little, if any, evidence of, uh, of like this, what we call voter impersonation fraud, which is why um, that one candidate that our uh, Dan Chu talked about um, <laughs> should really uh, step up and, and give us evidence of what he's talking about. Um, anyway, but um, uh, these poll books, they can, things can happen to them. And so I'm confident, you know, because I've heard the Election Assistance Commission and many election officials in this, in this cycle say that we have contingency plans. We have paper copies of these because what I worry about is, and we saw this, uh, if we have any congressional staffers that have been there for over 10 years, then you've, you actually experienced this um, in the state of Maryland, where you have a, this thing, the poll book crashing or not being able to work. So people can't sign in to vote. So you get these lines. The polling place basically cannot open. And uh, that may delay the opening of the polling place by a couple of hours. Well, for those of you who have to commute long distance, that may be the only time you can vote. It, it may be that only certain people have the luxury of coming back later in the day as the parties will sue to keep the, the, the uh, polling places open longer. And so those, those are another sort of critical element here that, that we've become worried about. But at least you can ask your election official, do you have a contingency plan? Um, what are your contingency plans? And hopefully they involve things like printing out the actual roster that you used to use um, so it may not uh, uh, be necessarily, you, know, you, you may not be saving money anymore, which is often the part of the impetus to move to these kinds of things, but you are making sure that you can, even if those things don't work, you can start voting right then and there. Um, uh, uh, you have a contingency plan. So we're going to be opening up for questions in a minute, so have in mind if, if there are any questions that you want. I, I just want to elaborate on that a bit, because you talked about, so this is a way to disenfranchise voters if you wanted to. Um, uh, we've had this problem, I, I remember in Georgia, it was a huge problem, e-poll books. County after county uh, was reporting that the e-poll books were down. 
Um, but it wasn't just that problem. A lot of voters were showing up to counties and their name wasn't in this electronic database. Uh, it may have been at the central database of county officials, but they hadn't updated. So people were uh, registering at the last minute. It didn't make it to the updated database that actually got on the poll book. And so a lot of voters were disenfranchised. Usually the process is that you can vote on what's called a provisional ballot, which means you get a paper ballot, and then um, that vote is sort of that ballot is sort of set aside until they can verify that you are a registered voter, and then your vote will be count, counted. Um, but oftentimes they don't have a contingency plan, and if the e-poll book breaks down, um, you don't have enough provisional ballots for everyone that's going to show up at the, the polling place. So, and again, so voters won't come back if they've been there in the morning. They're not necessarily going to come back in the afternoon to recast a, a ballot. Um, so. Huge problems, not just with voting machines, the e-poll books, the databases, registration databases. I say, we should mention briefly voter registration systems. Yes. I, I, I hate to. We spent the whole 2000s as academics and, and hackers worried about you know, vote flipping attacks, changing the vote. And now I think this year it's especially becoming sort of uh, apparent how much we neglect the registration, the voter year. registration <laughs> system. So uh, not to sound like a broken record and always talking about Virginia, even though it is my where I live, uh, but um, the voter registration system in Virginia uh, crashed on Tuesday, which I think was Tuesday. Uh, Monday, which was the last, anyways, the last day that you could register, and so now there's lawsuits uh, about extending the date for voter registration. There's no reason to believe that this was malicious. It was just an overload, uh, like what used to happen on e-commerce sites on uh, the days before Christmas, where everyone tried to place their orders and they couldn't handle it. Now they've learned how to do that for e-commerce. We haven't learned how to do it uh, yet for voter registration, and so some people. Uh, will be disenfranchised because they couldn't get their voter registration in um, because the system crashed. Mm -hmm. We're seeing amazing dynamics, like Facebook will nudge you and say, hey, where you live, the last day to register to vote is this day, and I have a feeling, I can't prove it, but I have this hunch that <laughs> some of that stuff Facebook. leads into uh, you know, these kinds of things, like, geez, oh man, today's the last day. Everyone gets an alert at the same time exactly, and they all rush to their yeah. computer. Yeah. Yeah. May so blame Facebook on, yeah. on the contingency plan. Yeah, it, it is in fact one of the criteria, one of the usual questions that is used in assessing international, uh, internationally elections. But uh, it is not the only one. Uh, having a plan is good, but not enough. The other question, very important, is: Is there a training for the uh, election management body officers to implement that plan? So, having a plan on paper really good, not enough. Well, but remember, the people manning those polling places are often volunteers who've just been recruited in the last maybe 24 hours to actually man those polling places. Usually. So the contingent plans. Usually more earlier than that, oh but I, I, I've been a polling yeah. poll worker, and I find out that three people call in in the morning sick, and you end up yeah, being true. the only poll worker can that I, day. Can I tell a story before we yeah. go to open so, so this is a really good emphasis of things that we do in the larger realm of cybersecurity that we don't do as much in, in election cybersecurity, which is, you know, for data breach um, type of scenarios, if you are an enterprise that doesn't, you know, uh, uh, actually sort of have a fire drill around what you do when you've had a data breach, you're not doing it right. And so this is exactly the point, is that we want to see election officials uh, and, and bodies actually 
running drills as if, oh, hey, it's election day, this happened, what do you do? And mm -hmm. put people right there and there in that situation. Sorry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, a number of years ago, I was giving a guest lecture at a university, and I asked, how old is the average poll worker? This was a group of undergraduates, and one of the students finally raised his hand and said, old. And I said, <laughs> how old? And he said, really old. And I said, how old? And he said, like 35. <laughs> <laughs> so the actual average age of a poll worker in the United States, according to the Election Assistance Commission, is 73. And think about when, that when we ask them to, uh, and, and I'm getting there, uh, I'm not there yet, but I'm getting there. Um, when we ask uh, folks to uh, set up complex technical systems yeah. on election day and run them securely, we're asking. And troubleshoot them. And troubleshoot them. We're, we're asking a bunch of folks who are not IT specialists, who grew up before they had computers and networks and all that sort of stuff, and we're asking them to be our IT experts uh, for the most important thing that happens in our country. So we have to really recognize point. that these things are hard to do. Yeah, really good point. Okay. Volunteer to be a poll worker. I'm one. <laughs> uh, yeah, so let's take questions. Do we need a mic for yeah. them or? Yes. Okay. There's one right there. Can go ahead. Pick. Oh, I'm picking? So let's go with him first. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, you've got a mic there. Thank you, Irv Chapman. Uh, the uh, Congress, as you said, passed uh, a uh, appropriation in 2002 to update uh, voting equipment. I don't think there's anybody in this room that has a computer or a smartphone dating from 2002. That's old. Exactly. So was our dysfunctional Congress derelict in not putting more money into updating? And, and if I may, uh, you mentioned the Ukraine experience. Does Putin's hacking crew have the ability on election night in this country to put a finger on a thumb on the scale in favor of either Donald Trump or just general disconcerting the American public. And for that matter, uh, there are elections in European countries of significance to us in the next couple of years. Uh, could he do the same for a right-wing candidate in France, Germany, wherever? Thank you. Um, well, I'll, I'll uh, address the first part of it about, about the finances, um, which is that there, there have been proposals in front of Congress. Uh, there's actually a bill that was just introduced recently uh, to provide federal level Johnson. funding, John, the Johnson bill. Um, uh, and it, it historically, prior to the Help America Vote Act, it was a state responsibility from a financial perspective to uh, purchase voting machines. And so in a way, it's not really surprising that after that one shot, um, we're done and, and the uh, Congress isn't inclined to put more funding in. In Virginia, there was a proposal by the governor to provide funding to localities to replace machines like this, um, and uh, that did not pass the legislature. It, there's just no incentive. Uh, nobody got elected, uh, whether to Congress or the presidency or, or uh, even uh, the, the city council, by saying, I'm going to spend more money on, on uh, uh, better voting machines. So it's, it's, a, it's the perennial stepchild uh, when it comes to money. Uh, elections just don't have a constituency, as ironic as that may seem. Yeah, and what I typically say is when any government official has a choice between like filling a pothole or putting money in elections, they're going to fill the pothole because you hear about elections maybe every two, maybe every four years, you hear about the pothole every day that that person's hitting the pothole, which is unfortunate. I think we do need more regular fund, federal funding of, of elections. Um, it'd probably have to be structured like highway funds, which means you're going to have all the 
the shenanigans that happen in terms of things that you have to agree to do to accept those funds, but you know that's just how politics works. As for your question about Putin having a thumb on the scale, uh, the very honest technical answer is, is we're, we're not sure. Um, and I say that meaning that uh, you can think of elections as a meadow that hasn't seen a lot of predators. And so we have a lot of uh, entities, beings, election officials that are sort of optimized for a place that hasn't seen a lot of predators. I actually think it's not a bad thing that we have predators now because we have to sort of adapt to work in this environment. And you know, something we didn't talk about is the US's history, the CIA, of directly influencing elections. 1948 with the Christian Democrats in Italy, um, the Chilean elections in 1964, 1970 that resulted in the Allende coup. Um, so it's, it's kind of strange that we're crying hue and foul when we've done it for over 100 years. I hear you, absolutely. And so, what, but I would say about the technical thing about Putin is that, you know, hacking the presidential election is, is probably the hardest thing to do in this election. I think you're much more likely to see your proverbial Tony Soprano hacking uh, one county to ensure that a waste management bond was, was passed, right? I think that's where you're going to see sort of the first uh, uh, detectable, undeniable evidence in the US of, of a vote hack. I don't think something that crosses that many states is as attractive. But then again, you know, if you can get suburban Philadelphia, and if it's close enough, um, there may be places that don't have paper trails that are, that are, that are like, for example, Dauphin County, and I was just, I tweeted about this, and sorry to be so snarky, but Dauphin County in Philadelphia uses a machine from like 1985. So yes, none of us have computers from 2002, but you guarantee very few of us have computers from <laughs> 1985. I remember those computers, they were a lot of fun, monochrome, oh boy. Um, but that's the kind of thing where that election official said, I could drop this off in the Red Square and the Russians couldn't hack it. <laughs> And, and the only response that I've seen so far that was even close to correct was, depends on how high you drop it. <laughs> I'd like to add one thing to, to this uh, very interesting question, which is um, about a recent uh, bill that has been uh, uh, introduced and sent uh, to the committee on September 20th uh, on election infrastructure and security promotion. And uh, this aims at uh, designating um, election uh, ele electronic infrastructures as uh, infrastructures uh, of critical strategic importance to the nation. Now, uh, this would allow uh, a response uh, that could uh, even be a military response uh, in the worst uh, scenario, including by engaging in this response allies in the NATO. And my comment on this is that uh, cyber security has not only to do with uh, cyber defense. Cyber security is about the uh, striking the balance between cyber defense and cyber offense. So is there enough consistency in our intelligence systems uh, between the two? Because the, the weaknesses of the systems that should be addressed in order to protect, to make uh, our electoral environments safer, are also potential entry points for attacking other systems. So is there consistency in our societies when, it deals, when they deal with the, uh, intelligence and cybersecurity between the defense and the offense? And I think th there is not enough clarity on that. It would be uh, interesting to see 
whether these uh, bill could actually imply um, imposing some restrictions on the cyber uh, attack side of this conundrum of cybersecurity. So I, I just want to—I'll come to your question in one second. I, so this has been a, a very frustrating thing for me, and probably for all of you as well, is that you see one story in the news that says uh, that Putin could hack the presidential election, and then you see another story that says no, it's not going to happen, and that's where you're falling. Um, so we are—we are really it's its really an unknown, and we won't know until it. Until we know, essentially, we may not know. We may not know. Something I say a lot is that these, these systems aren't designed to keep the kind of evidence you'd want to detect those kinds of attacks. They're mm. just not designed to be resistant against nation-state kinds of attacks, and or any. I mean, and even then, you know, if you were going to attack one of these machines, if it didn't work, you would make that fail to look like a garden-variety computer error, like a, a glitch, like the proverbial blue screen of death, for example, which you see on Windows machines. You used to see, actually, see kind of now too. Dang it! But anyway, um, those kinds of things. Uh, so that's something I'd keep an eye out for, and like you know, uh, if, if we see a market uptick in errors and, and strange kinds of things, that could be evidence. Could be the only evidence we see of, of mischief, but we'll never know. So it's 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 hard to to really bound that kind of stuff. Right. And of course, okay. of course where the machines are specifically designed so it doesn't say who you voted for Kim and who, who you voted for Joe and who to I give voted you privacy. for. Uh, right. To give you privacy, but that the side effect of that is if there's a problem, it's like, hmm, I'm kind of surprised. If I knew who you voted for, then maybe I could say, oh, I, I could have sworn you told me blah, blah, blah. But because we can't do that, it's very hard to, to detect strange things. It's like uh, in 2012, there were comments, there were precincts in Philadelphia where um, uh, Obama got 100% of the votes. And was that tampering? There were allegations that it was. But if you actually look at the history, it's no, that's a precinct that is really reliably uh, Democratic. And so it probably wasn't. And similarly, there was precincts that, that uh, went 100% or nearly 100% for, for Mitt Romney and other places. So something that looks strange isn't necessarily wrong. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to tell the difference mm -hmm. between something that looks strange and something that is strange. Good point. Okay. Um, and is that an I voted sticker, sir? Yes. Way to uh, go. Thank I, you. I voted this morning in uh, Virginia, <laughs> and it's a little bit disconcerting now uh, learning that uh, even though I asked about whether there was a paper track kept of my vote, um, to learn that uh, uh, they can't audit uh, the system even if uh, they do keep a record of it. So. Um, but my question uh, relates to um, your discussion has been primarily as to the capability of hacking uh, and taking into account what you just said about uh, detecting uh, hacking in the past. Uh, out, other than in Chicago in the 20th century, uh, which had a reputation for fraud, um, is there much evidence or any evidence as to um, how much fraud or hacking has been done in the 21st century up to this point? There's a lot of evidence of accidental bugs, and sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between a bug and a hack uh, because the symptoms are the same. They're uh, uh, Pottawatomie County uh, 
Iowa, which I love saying because it's so fun to say Potawatomi, um, had a case where their voting machine was misprogrammed. I think you wrote an article about this. I'm not positive. Probably that. did. Uh, probably did. And it turned out they use what's called ballot rotation, where uh, if you and I are living in the same precinct, um, the order of the candidates on, on your ballot and my ballot will be different so that no one has an inherent advantage of being first. Turned out they misprogrammed the uh, ballot rotation, and so the totals came out wrong. It was a bug. Um, and so we have lots of evidence of things like that going wrong. We don't have evidence of hacks. Miscalibrated machines. There yeah. are, problem with touch machines. There are terrestrial, like, non-cyber hacks. I don't even know what, maybe that's not the right word. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, we have evidence, for example, um, I believe this wasn't in Chicago, but was in uh, someplace in Illinois where we had a bunch of poll workers running the same ballot through an optical scan machine like a couple hundred times. And they didn't think that they might actually compare the total number of votes on the memory to what's in the basket, you know, the actual number of ballots. And so people are like, hey, these don't match. We'll just, you know, actually count the ballots over again. So we have seen things like that. There's a whole bunch of absentee ballot fraud. And this is actually kind of sad where someone will go to like a nursing home, um, have everyone sign their ballots blank and just take them and then go fill them out and, and do stuff with them. And so there's examples of that. There is very little, if any, like maybe four instances, I can get you a, a paper that cites all this stuff, of what we call voter impersonation fraud, which is what um, one candidate is particularly seems to be concerned with, although it's hard to tell, which is you know, coming to a polling place and representing that you're a different individual and doing that a number of times in other places. We, we, we just don't see a lot of that. We'd, we'd have, I mean, in terms of voting machines, we've, we have problems where after the election, they find memory cards from voting machines that haven't been accounted for, and they're in the trunk of someone's car, a poll worker's car, or something like that. Or you have, um, uh, I mean, again, is it intentional or not? It's, it's hard to say. Did someone just forget to take in the, the, the tallies? Right, there's a known, there's a known <laughs> bug in the Diebold GEMS system, which is one of the systems that tabulates, where under certain circumstances, even when you put the memory cards into it to say, give me the grand total for the whole county or whatever, it, it loses certain ones. Uh, and, and I don't know exactly when it loses it, and it's only certain versions of the software. This happened in California a number of years ago, and it actually happened last year, or maybe it was this year, in Tennessee in a local election where um, uh, three precincts out of 100 or five precincts out of 100 uh, weren't counted until they actually went back and did the canvas that Joe was talking about, got the final results, to, and as they were doing this, they discovered, oh, we don't have the results for the XYZ church uh, and the ABC elementary school, and so they went and found them. Right. It's, it's always hard to know what's a glitch and what's intentional. I, mm -hmm. Something similar, I'm not that sure if this was a Diebold machine, but there was a race, a superintendent school race, where the, every one out of 100 votes for this one particular candidate got dropped by the machine. It ended up being... That was um, in Virginia on wind votes. Was it? Was it? Okay. <laughs> oh, that's right. It was. Um, and so the candidate lost the race by 2% of mm -hmm. the votes. 2% of the votes was about 1,600, and she lost, she lost by 1,600 votes. Yeah. And 2% of the vote was 1,540. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, again, intentional for a school superintendent? Probably not. But maybe it was a test run to see if it actually works, right? And to see if anyone notices before you do it in a more serious election. Who knows? Maybe we have some organized crime in our school districts. Right, maybe <laughs> it was a really, yeah, maybe that was, maybe that was our Tony Soprano moment. <laughs> um, more questions? Yeah, in the back. 
Thank you. Um, John Nicholson at the British Embassy. So, Can't hear you. John Nicholson at the British Embassy. So the, um, the system we use uh, is very different from what's been described uh, on the, by the panel. It is paper and pencil, hand counting, um, sort of the equivalent of voter books are, um, are sort of printed out and scored off when you, when you vote, standardization across the country. Now clearly that doesn't eliminate you know, all possibilities of voter fraud, and there are historical examples. But How I many wonder, contests are, are on your, your ballots? Sorry? How many uh, choices does a voter have to make? Um, in a general election, it's one choice. Okay. Um, now, I wonder if you were designing a system from scratch, if you had a free hand, what you would design at this point, given what you've been talking about. That opens up my question about the Los Angeles County vote system. Yeah, you and want so, to talk about that? Absolutely. So there's a couple of counties in the U.S. that have been <laughs> so fed up with... In, the United States is the only country that seems to think it can buy voting machines on a free market and, and that's going to work out. Everyone else puts out specifications and a request for bids and you buy it as a country. We're huge and, and we, our federal government can't tell our states what to do in elections. Um, but uh, two counties, LA County, California, Los Angeles County, California, and Travis County, Texas, have decided that they're so fed up with what's available on the market that they're going to build their own. And so Travis, it's mostly on paper. It's a bunch of, it's a design concept and, and some software and stuff that works. Um, in LA County, they've actually spent the past five years working with a, a story design firm, IDEO, with about $15 million to produce a new voting machine. And they have five prototypes now. And this is essentially what we call a ballot marking device. It's a big pen. Uh, you, you essentially walk up to it with a blank ballot. It sucks it in. You interact on a touchscreen to cast a vote, and it just fills out your ballot for you. And so it doesn't actually keep any information. Like, it doesn't know how many votes or what or anything like that. It shouldn't know how many votes or what, but it, you don't pull the data off of it to do the count. You take that ballot and you put it in a ballot box. Those are later scanned in mass at a central facility, so you have to keep the chain of custody very, very secure. Um, but then um, it's, it's, it's a... It's the most secure voting system I have seen that seems to be at the state of development that it's in right now, and it uses a dual-chip trusted computing architecture, So, which is a way of saying that each piece of software for each device is cryptographically signed so that so that the county is the only one who can put a given piece of software on that machine. So these, you know, reach around the back and stick a, a USB stick. Those kinds of attacks wouldn't work here unless you had, unless you'd done some complicated stuff. Um, that's sort of, you know, they had two goals there. One was redesigning the, the interaction of the voter so it's as smooth as possible. There's a whole bunch of really neat things they've done with accessibility and things like that. But it also is trying its best to replicate the security of like an optical scan system with a touchscreen system. So it's basically, you can think of it as a very expensive, it's like a million dollar right now because there's only five of them, right? Very expensive pen that, that fills in your ballot for you. That's really, and not only that, but it's, it, it's going to be open source. So that means all the software, all the hardware, you could take the AutoCAD files to your metal bender and they'll stamp out a bunch of those things and stuff like that. So the idea is to eventually have a system that anyone in the US or anyone around the world could build off of. Um, and if you don't like the hardware, you could change that stuff too and things like that. Um, and, and so that, that's what I'm, I'm hopeful that this sort of, this effort to, to you know, have a more open way of designing things would, would, would deliver, you know, one, increased usability, but also uh, the kind of security that we really expect. And, and something like, you know, like Linux and other kinds of things, which aren't by, by their nature, open source systems we use elsewhere, aren't by their nature um, innately secure, but can be more secure if they're used in certain ways and with certain kinds of tools used to analyze them. 
Just one small correction. I believe Travis County, uh, Texas, uh, put out their RFP. Oh, cool. This week, last week? Last week. Joe would know. Joe would know. <laughs> and do you have a question back here? Did that answer your question? I'm sorry. Hi, David. I, I, I wish we had uh, just one very small comment. So Los Angeles, um, the average election has 100 things on the ballot to vote on. Yeah. And 11 languages? Yeah, and that's why, uh, as much as I love the simple hand-counted paper ballot concept, and there, there are people in the United States who think we should do that, um, I don't think it's workable unless- For a large county. For, for a large county, uh, unless we completely rethink our, how we elect our government. It's not just the voting machines. The voting machines are a side effect of these complex elections. Can we borrow, borrow a parliament? <laughs> <laughs> right, where you've got a 25-page ballot. Yeah. Uh, David Turetsky, isn't, isn't a big part of the problem that we try to set this up in a way that is calculated to magnify problems rather than minimize them by trying to do this in one day between 7 a.m. You know, between 6 a.m. and 7 p.m., so that any problem uh, causes the most uh, the most chaos possible. We were you were talking about electronic poll books. You were talking about what in the cyber world we talk about as an incident response plan. Yeah. Um, you know, there's so little time to react. And what happens at a polling place is if the electronic poll books start working, and you're starting to check people in on those, and then they stop working. Even if you had uh, paper poll books, you don't know who's already voted in the electronic poll books. Mm -hmm. So you're in an extremely chaotic situation. They're going to try to fix the electronic poll books first. What happens as they try to do that is the lines grow longer if it's near a peak part of the day. What happens when the lines grow longer is people don't move their cars, and so there's no parking and there's utter chaos on the roads. And by trying to jam all of these voters into such a short window, which means the problems are harder to uh, prepare for, solve, and resolve quickly, isn't that the biggest risk to the credibility of our elections, more so than the outcome being uh, challenged through, changed through uh, hacking? Well, I just want to point out that the trend now is towards a longer election cycle. I mean, we now, it used to be in order for uh, to do um, absentee ballots, right? You had to be out of the country and you had to prove that you were going to be out of the country. Years ago, this is the way, the only way that you could vote outside of uh, the actual election day and you could vote on a paper ballot. And states have relaxed those rules now and I don't know what the percentages maybe you do about the number of voters who now vote from home uh, a using lot. a paper ballot. Depends on the state. And right? are, yeah. you, I mean you have to be willing to give up the privacy of your vote because it's on a paper ballot, it comes in with your, your name on it and they verify that it, it's well, your ballot, so there it's are no longer a private vote. There, but there are significant processes in place in the election offices so that they check the envelope, make sure you're registered, and then there's and an inner envelope, up, so. and then they put the, they put the unopened inner envelope in a ballot box, and they don't open that until later. So, so there, there's very strong process uh, security to ensure that your ballot is secret. However, it doesn't always work if you're the only absentee voter in your <laughs> precinct, um, and that actually someone was telling me recently about a story like yeah. that. Then, then when we know how many absentee ballots v voted for whomever, we know who it was. But a lot of jurisdictions but have do, been moving you know? towards vote centers. Yeah. Um, so having, 
you know, you can vote over this two-week period at five different facilities around this, the city or the county or whatever. Um, uh, for example, I think Colorado and maybe Washington, one of those two is doing something now where they um, send everyone a ballot in the mail. And you can return them. You can, re you can surrender it and vote in person somewhere else if you want to. Um, th those are, it's, it, I could go on forever about those because there's some things that actually are not so good about those kinds of models. Um, uh, but, but that tends to alleviate this, what we call the load or the scaling problem with having everything on one day. And it's like a Tuesday when everyone has to work, even though you, you should be able to get time off for it. Yeah. Do, do we know, actually, how many voters are actually voting prior to an election these days, as opposed to the ones who are voting on election day? I don't have that with me, but it's, it's, it's considerable. Like, you know, some places it can be, like, permanent absentee in California is like 60, 70 percent of all voters or something like that. Mm. And, and it's going to differ a lot by state. Um, some states still require excuses. Uh, uh, the, you know, you can only do it if, if you have one of these eight different reasons, um, so uh, you can't generalize from one state to another. Mm -hmm. okay. um, yeah. There is also the, the aspect, if I may, of getting the immediate uh, results, getting results immediately, the rush towards having right. the yeah. results as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. That is also interesting. I uh, had the opportunity uh, a couple of weeks ago to meet with uh, a high-level delegation from a country that um, had elections recently, and they used uh, uh, e-voting to a large extent. And, uh, and he said that the results were well accepted, but he also added they were immediate, just a few minutes mm -hmm. after the uh, closing of the polling stations. And, and then his comment was also, uh, they were all well accepted, but because we hadn't a close election. So if you have mm -hmm. a close election, th that is the, the risk, mm -hmm. the political risk. In a highly polarized uh, political context, when you have a close election, irrespective of the technology, eventually there will be room for disputes and possibly also, in some cases, even violence for not accepting the results. Yeah. And that is irrespective of when you get them. Yeah. So I, I voted on Yom Kippur. Don't, don't tell my rabbi. Um, <laughs> and uh, um, what if something exciting happens in tonight's debate and I say, oh, I really wish I hadn't done that. Um, so this is the downside of having an extended uh, polling time is uh, it's hard for candidates to decide when to do their advertising, uh, the, the, the logistics and the uh, um, strategy of advertising and when to drop those bombshells and so on um, changes. So it, it, it's not just the mechanics of voting that changes, it changes everything about our elections. How many more questions do we have? We, we have can go for a couple hours. <laughs> There's people behind you, too. Oh, I, I, guess I, can I completely spin. missed that side over there. You guys don't need to exist. Um, okay, let's go with this question first, and then... Uh, That's the left wing. <laughs> uh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm David Benoitson. I live in Oregon, which has had totally vote-by-mail for years. And basically, you get your ballot in advance. You can fill it out anytime you want. You can mail it in as long as it's going to arrive by election day, or you can drop it in drop boxes. And it has a secrecy envelope, so your vote is still secret. Dr. Hall seemed to indicate there are problems with that. And I'm just wondering. So I, am, uh, I use vote by mail. Uh, I, I, I can't do my job without. I can't go to the polling place, just the nature of what I do. Um, and so I'm a big fan in terms of convenience. It is sort of one of the deep, dark secrets in terms of voting security that it's, it's it, to put it another way, um, before about 1900, election day was a payday for most Americans. You know, 80, 85% turnout, 
Um, they could actually observe you putting a ballot in a ballot box, and there were very distinctive colors, right? There, it was easy to figure out how, how it went. And that's why we adopted the Australian ballot, which is a secret ballot printed by the government where all the candidates are, look the same and no one has you know, big letters and stuff like that. Um, when we adopted that uniformly in the US, vote turnout went down to 20%. <laughs> and that was because there was no longer this incentive push or pull. They actually had to have civic reasons to want to go vote, not you know, uh, uh, compens compensatory or monetary reasons for going to vote. Um, I, I, and so that, that's the thing that concerns me is that you, know, you can have coercion, you can have buying, you can say, hey, uh, I, I know a, a person who does the opposite, which is really strange, where they will sign their ballot and give their ballot to their lawyer with about 500 bucks and say, vote how you think I should vote, which is very strange uh, and is totally illegal, uh, by the way, um, at least where this person lives. Um, West Virginia wouldn't be illegal. But anyway, because uh, the Constitution of West Virginia allows you to show anyone your ballot before you cast it after you've marked it, which is the only state that allows you to do that. Um, and so the reason that I'm down on vote by mail is because it, it re reduces this, this, the secrecy element or the privacy element. So privacy is protecting your ballot against other secrecies that I'd really like you not to be able to tell anyone else how you voted. Um, but unfortunately, vote by mail is not going anywhere. And in fact, it, it does have um, the, the level of enfranchisement in, high, in highly rural areas is, is, mm -hmm. is unparalleled. So, and it's better than internet voting and all sorts of other things because yeah. you do end up having a permanent paper record that can be audited. So I, I, I have two quick things to that. One is for people with disabilities, uh, vote by mail makes it much harder for them. They have to tell, have someone else fill it out for them. Um, they they uh, can't, unless they have a marking device on their computer, it, it just reduces uh, someone uh, who has motor impairments or, or visual disabilities. And the other thing is it, re it increases the level of undervotes because people, there's no machine to check, did you correctly color in the circles or did you put a check mark or people do amazing things, they circle the name of the candidate they like, they or cross circle the circle instead of filling out the circle. Right. Uh, they, the they, machine can't read those. Yeah, I had some, uh, an election official tell me just the other day that he had someone who came in who said, I don't need your instructions, I'm a PhD, and then proceeded to circle the circles and it got kicked out by the voting machine and he, this voter was, uh, I'm a PhD but I can't follow instructions and sorry, circle. They rarely can. Yeah, modern day literacy, <laughs> yes. Um, there was a question back here. And then I'll come to you guys, sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you've all mentioned a couple different scenarios that have happened. One was in Ohio. Hold it yeah, oh, sorry, is this better? Great. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned in Ohio where there was a third party that had access to the oh, network, the, I believe. That's very it typical. Right, and the, and the third second party company that was uh, sort of managing the aggregation of the votes from different counties, and then reporting them to the county website. Got it. And then there was also some discussion of of uh, uh, hacks of voter registration rolls. Could you just illustrate what outcomes could result from the access or compromised uh, uh, networks or or databases that would result from these? activities? Sure. Uh, so, so for example, in Ohio in 2004, we had a machine that, and this is when we were using uh, modem, telephone modem-based transmission of results from the polling place to the central facility. We had a machine that phoned into the, the central facility and basically reported twice as many votes as it had actually recorded. And this was at a time where they weren't using encryption on the connection. They were using something called a CRC, which is not 
uh, appropriate for this kind of a thing. And um, we don't know what happened. It could have been a cosmic ray that came in and, and flipped that stuff. And, but you could imagine with access to the network itself, you can fiddle with the bits in real time because this isn't hard uh, to change stuff that flies by. Unfortunately, there are a lot of, I mean, I guess I, instead of saying unfortunately, I should say it, uh, there's something like anywhere from eight to 10,000 election jurisdictions in the country. Most of those don't even have a full FTE, don't have a full-time staffer for their elections operations because that person has to do titling, clerking, all sorts of other th stuff too. So you better believe they're going to write a contract and that, that says, hey, you take care of much, as much of this as you can. Um, that's why you know, I think there's a great opportunity for, for some sort of like cloud provision for these kinds of folks, some, something that can at least, and, and I don't know who should do that, so I don't have all the answers, but that's the kind of thing you could imagine trying to abstract away that to, uh, either where you don't need to trust the third party, which is what I prefer, using end-to-end -end cryptography and really fancy kinds of things that'll ensure that, that, that where I think we're a little far away from that. Um, but you know, having maybe someone else run infrastructure for folks so that they don't have to sort of either uh, you know, pay someone out of their pocket to do it who may not do it very well. Um, anyway, that, so that's a, a not very satisfying answer. Was that sufficient? <laughs> oh, sorry. So, um, I mean, it's very easy to imagine this. So, uh, voter registration data is the most useful data for re-identification attacks. So, if you've heard of de-identification of data in health or other kinds of things where they remove certain kinds of identifiers um, to be able to share that data more widely, voter registration data, because many people are in it, and it has very specific types of of key uh, data, like the last four of your social, your date of birth, your home, your, your phone number, and some southern states, your ethnicity, and other things like that. Um, there's already sort of a motive to get access to that kind of data and to have that kind of stuff. And so the Illinois voter registration hack, where 90,000 um, individual records were exfiltrated, so to speak, from their uh, staging system, that's a good example of something that you do. So, but that's just pulling stuff off. In terms of actually influencing the vote, you can imagine an attack that would remove 5% of the voters from the registration rolls from one particular party. Um, and you know, given how close our elections are, check out Wikipedia, Duvenger's Law, D-U-V-E-N-G-E-R, S Law, the only law in political science, uh, basically says if you have a system that's first past the post, a system where the majority wins, you regress to a two-party system with very, very close margins. And because we have such close margins, um, removing 5% of the voters from one party or the other could, could be a perfect attack for actually influencing the vote. So we're, we're, actually, we're actually out of time, but That's I promised okay. you guys yeah. that you would get your questions in. So if you can ask them quickly and then keep your answers briefly. Yes, sir. Uh, okay, so I will try and be brief. Um, <clears throat> I'm concerned mostly about the perception thing because uh, we have this copy of the report that I know Joe was here at the Atlantic Council two years ago. Um, on the stage with my boss, I worked for Congressman Langevin. He was actually skyping in uh, to make and to to talk about that. So I think that you know, it's it's really great to see all this focus on election cybersecurity, but a lot of it is tied to the DNC hacking. I mean, there were voter registration databases that were getting dumped online, and people were finding them for years before Arizona and Illinois. Um, so. How do, you know, I, th I think the focus is good, but I think that the biggest concern is the perception that 
people will have that the election is illegitimate. So how do we build resiliency? I mean, in in the electorate to deal with that fact. I mean, one of one of the great threats to our voting system, from where I sit, is rain. That drives down turnout like nothing else. I mean, you can disenfranchise five percent of the population that would show up or the, the voters that would have shown up, but it was raining. And we try and build resiliency to counter that and say, even though it's raining, it's worth it, it's your civic duty, it's whatever else. So how can we build resiliency in the American populace, particularly because we know that the AP has been hacked, the DNC has been hacked. Um, even if we don't have the specific examples and it's hard to figure out in terms of the voting system itself, the idea that the dissemination methods or something like that is going to be hacked is, we have past evidence that these things have been hacked, so how can we build resiliency in, in the American populace to deal with that fact? A three-word answer, evidence-based elections. So being able to demonstrate to folks that the, the, this is how it's supposed to operate, this is how it operated, don't worry. Any mischief, you know, I'm being very hand-wavy because it's extremely complicated how you do that, but to the extent we can base trust on actual evidence that these systems are resilient, that, that's as good as we can do, and people can still worry, and that's their problem. I, I would agree. I'd also say for today, uh, part of the answer is uh, diversity or complexity, depending on what you want to look at it. it can be our friend and I think is our friend. Um, it's just too damn hard because every state does things differently. Every county does things differently. Um, it's, it's awfully hard to have a large-scale impact. As, as Joe says, it's, it's easy to, to fix the, the wastewater uh, treatment uh, bond, uh, but it's, it's, it's really hard to change big things because there's just so many different things that, that get cross-checked against each other. And our election officials do a fabulous job with not nearly enough resources. Absolutely. So we need to not blame them when things don't go the way we always hope because they're doing a fabulous job given the limitations they have. I also agree, the, the uh, technology is just a fragment of a, of a mosaic that uh, has to be uh, consistent. And that is the system uh, the uh, people should build confidence in. <laughs> Quickly. No, 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 please. please. No, 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 I promise you. I promise you, Sean. Thanks so much, Kim. I appreciate it. Um, uh, Dr. Hall, you, you referred to elections as kind of a meadow with very few predators. Uh, I was curious, uh, other, uh, other than nation states, um, what some of the other uh, malicious actors sort of look like. And if there's any intelligence that sort of leads you to believe that, uh, you know, Tony Soprano is trying to hack uh, an election in suburban Philadelphia. Yes, so I don't have any evidence that there's any organized criminal that is actually trying to do this. Um, I do think that we see nation-state influences in the Guccifer kinds of stuff, but I'm not, you know, I'm a little worried of attributing that directly to a fancy bear and blah, 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 you know, whatever. It seems, seems reasonable. Um, I do think that there are folks that just recognize how valuable some of the data is and that there are people who, who are, you know, like, in, in, like, as I forgot your name, I'm sorry, the guy from Langevin's office, but as he was stating, there have been, security researchers have found you know, databases that campaigns have not decommissioned of like all voters that include not only the, the, the list of their names, but uh, appended commercial data. So even if you've 
have the addresses removed for all the federal judges in a voter registration list. If the campaign goes and adds the addresses back on, all of a sudden that federal judge's address is now publicly available and is a very sensitive piece of information. Um, so there are people who that, and there is also sort of the, I don't know what to call them, the lulls folks, the folks who just think, oh man, there, there's, there's fun to be had here. And um, I think you know, some of that you've seen, for example, people like yesterday poking out all, all the cross-site scripting vulnerabilities on Donald Trump's infrastructure, which is apparently legion, right? And most of those folks are just sitting around like, hey, there's a website, hey, I can play around so, with so it. So LulzSec is, is more likely than, than I think you know, the second we put a, a, a candidate that's attractive to anonymous or LulzSec on a ballot that's going to be feasible with internet voting, they will be elected. Yeah. I, I think it's worth mentioning, it's hard to predict. Um, the one election that I know of that was fixed was the U.S. Rowing Association. Why would someone fix an election for the U.S. Rowing Association? I don't know, but somebody did. I don't remember if that was an insider or outsider attack. I don't remember. But it, it, it sometimes boggles the mind what people think is worth their effort. And so I'm not going to presume who is or isn't, whether it's LulzSec or a nation state or, or a campaign that has gone off the rails and is willing to try whatever they want, whatever they can in, you know, in a, in a neighborhood election. Um, there, there was a case in uh, uh, one of the colleges in Southern California where a student, uh, student uh, put uh, key loggers on the machines in the student union building because they really wanted to be elected to the student council. It's like, you know, come on, it's not that important to have that on your resume, but how many federal crimes did you just commit? <laughs> and, and the FBI caught him yeah. and blocked him up for trying to hack the student council election. So we need to wrap up, but before we go, I do want to uh, sort of throw this out there as a public service announcement about uh, calling in on election day if you discover problems. There is a group. Uh, it's run by a legal coalition, and I'll let um, Joe talk about it, but uh, it's very helpful. Um, it's, it's been in existence for I don't know how many elections at this oh gosh, point. Since, since 2002, I believe. So people can report in problems, long lines, voting machines, not report, touch screen machines, not recording what they're intending to record, uh, e-poll books not being up and running, any problems you can report to this legal group um, and they can provide assistance. Yeah, so there are partisan efforts, but this is a nonpartisan effort run by the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Uh, check out 866ourvote.org or on election day call 1-866-OUR-VOTE and you can ask questions, you can get help. They'll even send a lawyer out if you're having s serious problems that require legal, legal intervention. Is that multiple jurisdictions? It's, it's nationwide. Every, every place you can vote in the United States of America, they will be on the ground and, and available. Okay, so thank you. Let, join me, please, in thanking all of the panelists here for a great discussion. Um, so join us outside. And we have a voting.